Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. It's great to see you guys. Ekaterina, welcome. Yaakov and Loan, welcome. Donna, welcome. Joy, welcome. Joy, welcome. Sandrine, welcome. David, welcome. It's a good morning. It's great to have you guys. Okay, we have a lot to talk about. It's a very special day. In fact, um, right, yes, as David points out, Kabbalah and coffee without the coffee. And the reason for this is because today is the 17th day of the month of Tammuz, which is a fast day, which begs the question, why do fast days go so slow? That's a joke. Um, so it's a fast day because several unpleasant things happen on this day, including, I'm going to read you the list from Chabad.org. All right, in the year 1313, I'm going to give you a little bit of a history primer right here. In the year 1313, uh, sorry, 1313 before the Common Era. I don't know why it's why I'm reading this like that. Okay, in the year 2448 from creation, Moses breaks the tablets. Remember when uh, the Jewish people committed the sin of the golden calf and Moses came down the mountain? Remember that whole story? All right, that happened on this day. Moses broke the tablets. Um, what else happened in the year 423 before the Common Era? The daily sacrifices called the Tamid in the Holy Temple were discontinued three weeks before the first temple was destroyed. So be, be, from the time the Mishkan, the tabernacle, was built by Moses, all the way through the time of the first temple, pretty much, there was always daily sacrifices that were brought. Three weeks before the first temple was destroyed, there was already enough of upheaval and disruption that they stopped bringing the daily sacrifices. In the year 69 of the Common Era, this is in the Second Temple Era, so that was the First Temple. Second Temple Era, the Jerusalem walls were breached on this day, which again led to the destruction of the Second Temple, also on the 9th of Av, which will be in exactly three weeks. Um, let's see, so the walls of the city of Jerusalem were breached, the Roman general Apostamus burned the Torah, and he placed an idol in the Holy Temple, and that is what happened on this day, the 17th day of Tammuz, historically. So, historically, it is a day of sadness, a day of mourning, a day of fasting, and it begins the time period known as three weeks. Three weeks between kind of these portents of destruction until the ninth of Av, which will be three weeks from today, which is the day that the temple, both temples, were destroyed. The first by the Babylonians, the second by the Romans. What's important to note is that this three-week three -week period is a time of, um, it's a time of decreased joy and celebration. So, we don't have weddings, we don't go to concerts, we don't... We, we try to diminish the, the festivities that we would perhaps normally have. I mean, Jewish stuff is still, uh, still okay. You can go to synagogue, you can go you know, to a kiddush after services, that sort of thing. But we try to minimize um, kind of more celebratory celebrations, you know, parties, that sort of thing. This time of year is, uh, is the saddest time of year on the Jewish calendar. Okay, um, so today is, this is Kabbalah and coffee. Sands the coffee, but with the Kabbalah. So on these days, we have to make sure that the Kabbalah is extra strong because the coffee is missing. All right, let me welcome uh, folks that just jump in. Uh, we have 
uh, Toba welcome, Tony welcome, Fran welcome, and Alexander welcome. It's great to have you. Good to see you. Okay, so let's jump into today's topic, which, what did I write was today's topic? It was something about... The dark side. The dark side, about Klippa, about, um, oh, the revenge of the dark side, or the revenge of the Klippa. Okay, but here's what I really want to talk about. I want to talk about movies, and you'll see why I want to talk about movies in a moment. So when it comes to movies, every movie pretty much, okay, I'm, I'm like painting with a broad brush, so excuse my overgeneralizations here, but every movie needs a hero and a villain. Why do you need a hero and a villain? So let me break it down based on my non-film, you know, I'm not a film buff, nor, nor did I study film in school, but here is my take on this. You need a hero and you need a villain because that creates tension. Right, the hero is the good guy, the villain is the bad guy. If you had just a hero without a villain, you wouldn't have much of a plot, right? Good guy walks down the street, does good things, end of movie, I call that boring. Right? Super boring. There's no tension. There's no plot. It's just like, oh, good guy doing good things. <laughs> boring. Like, boo, what's the point of this movie? So what do you have? You have a villain. And the villain is trying to start trouble. Right? Think of, I don't know, Superman or something like that. Yeah, you have a villain. Who's uh, Superman's um, arch nemesis? Give me, give, me an, give me a nemesis of Superman. Batman? No, no. Bat no, I think they're on the same team, right? Aren't they? Lex, what is it, Lex? Oh, Batman. Lex Luthor. Okay, so he's the bad guy. So he's trying to start the trouble, and then Superman has to save the day. Boom, you got a film. Easy peasy, right? You got a bad guy, you got a good guy, the bad guy starts trouble, the good guy tries to stop it, the bad guy gets the good guy, the good guy escapes from the bad guy. It's like this whole thing back and forth. You can break down movies very simply, into good guy, bad, it's not gender specific, by the way, I'm using the word guy, I don't mean gender specific, but you have the hero, the villain, hero, villain, hero, villain, you know, the, 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 um, the pendulum of power swings back and forth, drama, tension, oh no, and they escape, right? That's like, there you go, that's how many movies does that cover, right? A lot of them. If you just had a hero without a villain, it would be boring. That's why that's why movies typically have, you know, there is the, um, there is the, there's the protagonist and the antagonist, right? Did I get that right? So in books, in film, plots are all about good guy, bad guy, a struggle. Now, back in the day, and excuse me if what I'm saying is not accurate, because the truth is, it doesn't have to be accurate. I'm just trying to bring out a point. So even if you know that it's not accurate, just, just work with me here. It used to be, <laughs> maybe, it used to be that films, they wanted to tell you a story about a hero. So how do they tell you a story about a hero? So you get someone who's the anti-hero. You get someone who is trying to foil the plans of the hero. And that creates, you, you start rooting for the hero. It's like, oh no, our hero is in danger. Oh no, what if the good stuff doesn't, get, doesn't happen because of the bad guy? What should we do? And so you're rooting against the bad guy 
and for the good guy. You're rooting against the villain for the hero. And the drama lies in will the hero get it done in time before whatever. Right? That's kind of where the drama lies. In that type of plot, it's very clear who we're supposed to be rooting for. Right? There is a good guy. There's a bad guy. Root for the good guy. Don't root for the bad guy. But at some point, things shifted. I can't tell you when. I can't tell you why. I know why. But things shifted. Hey, Susan. We're talking about heroes and villains. So here's the deal. At some point, it shifted. And instead of villains only being there to highlight the hero, to make the hero look good, the villains became heroes unto themselves. Are you with me on this? Instead of the Joker, for example, right, being clearly the bad guy and you're rooting against the Joker and you're rooting for Batman, at some point it switches, right, in filmography and suddenly it's, not, it's now romanticizing the villain. Now it's like, oh, the villain, I think, you know, I actually, the hero is boring. The hero is, you know, who's the real Joker? I mean, the hero, Batman, whatever. Joker seems like a super dark and edgy guy. I actually like that guy, right? The Joker's got depth. The Joker has, he's a real guy. He's, got, he's struggling with stuff. Batman, you know, who knows about Batman? But, you know, we start rooting for the bad guy. So I want, to, I want to kind of bring this back into the analog here for a moment. Not as opposed to digital, but like the analog, analogy, analog, right? So what's, what's, what's the idea here? We talk about good and evil, or the light and, the, and darkness. And this is a theme that we've talked about before, a theme that's very prevalent in Kabbalah, is that God created the universe with a very specific intention. And the intention is actually captured in the opening words of the Torah. In the beginning of Genesis, the Torah tells us, the Bible tells us, that God created the world Right? In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. The first thing God, well, that's the, kind of the general intro. But what, what's the first thing that God creates? What's the first thing that God speaks into existence? Help me out here, guys. What's the first thing that God says, let there be, let there be? Light. Light. And this is not a statement about physical light. After all, the sun only is created on day number four. So clearly the light of day one is not the light that you and I typically understand. The light created on day one is more of a metaphysical light. It's more of a spiritual light, a conceptual light that really brings out what it is that is the, the, the central and the soul, the focal point of creation itself. In other words, why did God create heaven and earth? Why this? Why us? The most basic question of life. Why are we here? Why are we here? The answer is in the beginning. Open up the Torah, you have your answer. God said, let there be light. Why am I creating all this? I want there to be light. Let there be light. There should be light. God says, I'm creating this and putting you here 
for the purpose of light. I want you to make light. I want you to facilitate light. I want you to cultivate and nurture the light. Light is the end game. That's the objective. However, there's no light without darkness. There's no hero without a villain. Right? You don't have light without, without darkness. Light is not light when there's no contrast. Correct? You with me? One could argue, who says, you know, you, maybe you could just have light and light is light and that's it. But you and I know that in the, certainly within the parameters, within the framework of reality as we know it, you don't appreciate something unless you have the opposite. Something doesn't stand out unless there's contrast. Right? You can't see it if, if, if there's nothing contrasting it. So, so the point is that God creates darkness also, but for a very specific purpose. A purpose that we've spoken about numerous times in various classes, including this very setting, Kabbalah and Coffee. And that is that darkness in, is intended, intended initially, to serve the purpose, to provide the contrast, to be the foil, to, to be the tension against light and goodness. So evil exists for one purpose, to provide the temptation, to create free choice, to provide the, the balance to that which is actually desired, which means that God wants light. God wants goodness. It's not a question. It's not like, well, maybe God wants us to, uh, to peruse the dark side. Absolutely not. God creates, the intention of creation is, let there be light. Light, Torah, mitzvot, good deeds, love and kindness, peace, right? All, holiness, spirituality, all of that stuff is the intention. So why does all the other stuff exist? Why is it that there is evil in the world? Why are there evil urges, negative urges? Maybe evil is a harsh term. Why are there negative or at best distracting urges and thoughts within myself? Not so that we should actually jump on those or take those offers up, but rather to reject them. To feel them, to be enticed by them, the, the internal stuff, and to reject so, for example, imagine you're Adam and Eve, right? Or imagine, even better, you're a drone that is kind of like hovering alongside Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden shortly after creation. I should mention parenthetically, um, hold on one second. Let me welcome Matt and Mariana. Welcome. Good to see you guys. Okay, so I should mention parenthetically regarding the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve only had a few hours of prohibition on eating the, tree, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They were only told up until Shabbat, they were created on Friday, Friday midday, they were told until Shabbat, or right before Shabbat, that you're not supposed to eat from the tree. They couldn't withstand that challenge for just a few hours. It's, it's mind-boggling, although when we think about it in our own lives, it might resonate a little bit. I mean, how often do we indulge, even though, you know, number one, we're not supposed to, number two, 
Could have just waited a few hours, whatever that means in whatever context. But back to our story. So imagine we have a drone, right? Some sort of like camera view of what's going on. So we have Adam and Eve created by God in the Garden of Eden. And they've been told everything is yours. You can enjoy whatever it is except this one tree. Everyone asks, why even create the tree, the forbidden fruit? Why even create the challenge? Just put them in the Garden of Eden, and that's it. You ever wonder that question? Like, why even create the, the tree of knowledge that you can't eat? Well, the, I gave you the answer before. You can't have a hero without a villain. Or you can't have a hero without a little bit of tension, without a little bit of danger. So what's the danger? The danger is, ooh, there's a tree that looks pretty good that's off limits. So now the question is, will our hero stay true to task and listen to God or succumb to the temptation of the delectable tree of knowledge of good and evil that is off limits? Okay, enter one more character into the scene. And now we have the serpent, right? That slithery serpent, although then the serpent was not slithering according to our tradition. It was walking upright on two legs. It's the curse. Torah says the curse of the serpent after the sin is that it has to slither on its belly. Nonetheless, enter the serpent. And the serpent now engages directly with Eve, with Chava, to entice her to taste of the fruit. And says, looks good, right? I'm sure it tastes good. Try some. No, God doesn't want. Why? I don't know why. He says, I'll tell you why. Because it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's a tree of knowledge. And God wants to keep you without knowledge. God wants all the knowledge, right? God is hoarding the knowledge for himself. God's keeping all the knowledge. He doesn't want you to become as smart as him. Because the moment you're as smart as him, now he's got a challenge. Now you can challenge him. So that's why he doesn't want you to eat from it. So he plays on fear, paranoia, competition, all of this stuff the serpent plays on. And the next thing you know, she's eating from the tree, and Adam is eating from the tree, and, and all the, and, 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 the, and, the, and the damage is done. So why did God create the tree in the first place? The answer is very simple. Without a tree, there's no drama. Without drama, there's no story. Without a story, there's no purpose. Right? Why do I say there's no purpose? What is the purpose of Adam and Eve roaming around the Garden of Eden without any challenge, without any temptation, without any potential dark side? So what's the point? Just to hang out and relax and, and chill with God? What's the point? I mean, that sounds relaxing, but what's, what's, where's the story? Where's the drama? And then you might ask, well, who says there needs to be drama? I'll answer you very simply. I didn't say it. God said it. God created the tree of knowledge. And he said, don't eat from it. And then he added a serpent. Clearly, God wanted the drama. Clearly, God wants the temptation. God wants free choice to be a thing and for there to be a choice between two compelling choices. Do I follow what's right or do I get enticed by what's not right? But one thing we know is that even as God wants there to be the drama of choice, God wants us to choose correctly. So again, 
It's a bit of a tightrope that we're walking. God wants evil, not so that we choose it, but so that we choose against it. So does God want the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Yes. Does he want the serpent yet to exist? Yes. Clearly he made them. He wants them. But it's a little bit more subtle than that. God doesn't really want the serpent so that we listen to the serpent, so that we align with the serpent. God wants the serpent to provide the challenge that we reject, that we fight against. No different than a Hollywood plot where there's a hero and a villain, the anti-hero, and our hero has to continuously fight against the villain. But at some point, Hollywood realized, let's try something new. What if, what if the hero starts sympathizing or aligning with the villain? What if the hero becomes the villain? That would be interesting. Or what if the villain is more likable to the audience than the hero? So maybe in this film, maybe we can shift allegiance away from the hero. Ah, the hero, so boring, right? So, it's so predictable. Oh, hero with all your good stuff. Seriously, dude, right? Live a little. The villain seems exciting. So at some point, and I don't, I'm not, it would take someone who really knows film, really knows the history of film, or even the truth is literature, to find out when it is that human beings got this chap. In Yiddish, we would call it a chap, a realization. You know what? Let's make the villain exciting. Let's try to align emotionally. Let's try to get the audience to align emotionally with the villain instead of the hero. It's, a, it's an incredible chap. It's an incredible you know, um, um, idea. And it works. If I'm not mistaken, again, the movie, wasn't there a movie, The Joker? Or Joker? Heath Ledger? Yes? Correct? Where it was all about kind of sympathizing with the, with the villain, and the villain is now the hero. So just blurring lines. So, and I'm not criticizing the film. I don't know the film. Um, I understand that Heath Ledger uh, is no longer with us, and some say that it's, 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 it's attributed to that, but I'm not going to wade into that. Here's, here's my point. Um, there are lines. And initially the lines are hero, good, villain, bad. At a certain point in time, we might say, you know what? Hero, bad, villain, good. Right? Why? Because. But that's, again, in Hollywood, is Hollywood, is Hollywood, the directors, the directors, they got their own agendas, whatever, it's to sell, to sell tickets. But the point is, in our lives, it's very important to understand that light is light and darkness is darkness. And light is good and darkness is not good. And our job is to align with good, light, life, that which is, that which is good, and to, and to reject the opposite of that. So in the cosmic scheme of things, there's also a plot. And what makes the plot juicy is the fact that you have two sides. You have the hero and the anti-hero. You have the side of good and you have the side of evil. The way it's described in Kabbalah, and we've said this before, 
is that there are two levels of ratzon. Ratzon means will. I'm using now Kabbalistic terminology. So in Hebrew, ratzon, ratzon is spelled, I'm going to write it into the chat. One second. Why is my autocorrect trying to spell ratzon? That ain't going to work. All right, that's how you spell ratzon, in English at least, R-A-T-Z-O-N, ratzon. Ratzon means will or desire. But Kabbalah is very quick to teach us that when it comes to desire, there are so many levels and contradictory levels of desire. You can want something and then want the opposite of that thing. Because desire and what you want, what you want is so complicated. What you and I want, human beings. So in general, we have two dimensions. Of course, there are myriad of dimensions. There are innumerable number of dimensions. But in general, we have two dimensions. There's what we call panemio tarazon, which is the inner desire, the deepest desire, and then there's chitzoni tarotzon, which means the more external layers of desire. And as I've explained many times before, when a person says, I want something, if you're having a conversation, let's say you're analyzing them or interviewing them, right? You say, what do you want? And you say, this is what I want. You can always probe further by asking, why do you want that? The person says, I want this. I want X. Why do you want X? Because if I have X, then I'll have Y. Aha. One second. So you don't really want X. You want Y. Like a person says, I want money. Right? I want money. I want to earn money. Valid want. Valid desire. Perfect. But then you follow up with another question. Why do you want money? And so they're probably looking at you and say, what do you mean, why do I want money? Uh, everyone wants money. Of course, I say, no, answer the question. Why do you want money? Like what? You, you just, you, you want money? Why do you want money? So they'll say, no, because if I, I don't just want money, but if I have money, then I'll be able to buy the things that I want to. So then you say to them, aha, okay. So it's not the money that you want. It's the things that you want that you'll get with the money. You see how we went one step deeper there? All right, so it's not just the money, it's that you want the stuff that you can get with the money. Okay, then you go further. Well, why do you want the stuff? I want the stuff because it's going to make my life easier or happier. Say, so, okay, so then you don't want the stuff. What you really want is a happier or easier life. Good. The point of this, of this um, process is, and this is also true when, let's say, creating a new business. And you want to create like a, a vision for your business. Like, what do you want to do? A person could say, you know, I want to build this thing. I want to build a car. Why do you want to build a car? And then you get to the core of why you want to build this car. I want to build an electric car. Why? Why do you want to build an electric car? Keep on going deeper. Keep on asking, why do you want this? Why do you want that? Why, do you, why, why, why? You get to the core of the why. You can identify what's really at the heart of the matter. When you get to the last point upon which 
after which there's nothing deeper. We call that panemia tarotzon, what you really, really, really want. And maybe with that electric car, do you want to change the world? Maybe that's what it is. Maybe you want to change the world. Maybe you want to you know, save the environment or whatever it is. Maybe it's not about the car. It's about you know, four steps, five steps, ten steps beyond that. It's a much deeper agenda, a much deeper thing. So in a very similar vein, we have on a, on a, on a day-to-day level, day-to-day uh, experience, we have different levels of, of desire, of want. We want this because we want that, because we want the other, because we want the other, and it keeps on going until at some point there's what we really want. So the same thing is true with God. As it is in the human being, Kabbalah teaches us in a similar way. Obviously, you know, God's not a human being. God's not a bigger human being. God is beyond. But in a similar vein, we can speak about God's desire to create this world, to create all of this, the entire universe, all of existence, including the spiritual realms. Why did God create all of it? Let there be light. God wanted light, goodness, kindness, Torah, mitzvot, the good stuff. That's what God wanted. That is the core of it. But along the way, God has another desire. That the light be attained through hard work, through free choice. God says, for light to be valuable, for light to be precious, for light to look bright, there has to, it has to come out, it has to emerge from darkness, from the opposite of light. And so we need to create a realm of the opposite, called in Kabbalah, Sitra Akra, which literally means the other side. Or a realm that we've been discussing called Klipa, which means shell. Again, the concealment over the light, the shell that covers the light. Imagine a light bulb and you put a box on top. You can't see the light anymore. So God creates intentionally the dark side to create the tension and the, the contrast through which the real agenda is achieved, which is light, through choice, through hard work, through the contrast of the other side. But not that God wants us to actually choose and engage in the other side. In other words, it's only there to be rejected, not to be accepted. Originally, again, excuse me if I'm wrong, but I'm just using this as, a, as an analogy. Originally, the villain exists in the film and movies only for you to really hate the villain, to love the hero even more. Because if the hero was just walking around, getting in a car, going to work, coming home, then there would be no plot, it would, be not, it would not be exciting. But when there's a villain, now the hero is exciting. When there's darkness, the light is light, and it's the pro- product of struggle, and it's dramatic, and it's rich, and it's meaningful, and it's personal, and it's enriching. That is what God wants. So God creates the other side. God creates klipa specifically in order to have the contrast so that the light is that much brighter and more meaningful. The mistake is when we say, ah, there's another option. Let me check the, check the villain out. Let me see if I like the villain even more than the hero. Maybe I want to align with the dark side as opposed to the light. 
That's when we make the mistake, which is what we're going to get into in today's text. Donna, jump in. Thank you. Um, so we're less than 1% of the world's population. Yes. So isn't it a big burden? And the 99% is not doing the mitzvot. So it seems to be a big burden on us to bring the light into the world. So excellent question. I'll share, I, I want to share a few things. Number one, so our text is going to specifically focus on the Jewish mission of Torah and mitzvot. So you are correct. Our text will focus specifically on the Jewish mission. But in the bigger picture, Judaism maintains, um, as we've discussed also many times in classes, that everyone, Jewish or not Jewish, has the ability to bring light into the world by doing what their obligations are. Which means for the Jew, there are 613 commandments. For someone who's not Jewish, they have seven commandments. It's a big difference. But nonetheless, the seven commandments, the seven, what we call the seven Nohide laws, are very important. And they include also, also sub, there's seven general categories that, that include other details. But that's the way that all of man, humankind makes the world a moral, a good, a just, and a divine place. In fact, Maimonides says that not only is it incumbent upon everyone, all of humanity. You know the, 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 the denim company, Seven for All Mankind? I've talked about this before, right? Seven for All Mankind is literally a reference to the seven Nohide laws. So, because it's seven for all mankind. So, the seven for all mankind laws, Maimonides says, actually need to be done by mankind because God said so. Not just because I respect law and order and I respect not, not harming animals, so I'm not going to do it. Those are two of the, of the seven. So, that's not good enough. It has to be done because God said so there has to also be a spiritual connection there as well. My point only being that, yes, Jews are not even 1%. I mean, we're talking, I think maybe you said amongst Jews, maybe 1%. But Jews are a fraction of a fraction of a percentage of the world's population, 100%. And in fact, the Torah itself attests to that. 3,300 years ago, it says, Atem hamen mikolam, you are the smallest of all the nations. How'd they know? Right? How did, the, how did God know? God knows these things, right? So things haven't changed in 3,300 years. We're still very small. But the good news is, it's not, it's, it's not the only way that, um, that light is brought into the world. It's the Jewish way to bring light into the world. So for a Jew, as well, this is what we're going to discuss today. For a Jew, the pathway to bring light is through Torah and Mitzvot. So that's the responsibility, the privilege. That's the, that's, the, that's the world of a Jew. For someone who's not Jewish, there are other ways to bring light. But for the Jew, this is the path. Now, your second point is, amongst Jews, what's the percentage that are bringing light through Torah and Mitzvot? I would say that it doesn't matter what a person considers themselves a label, label this, label that, the reality is the Talmud attests, 1,500 years ago, the Talmud says, even, I'll, I'll tell you a story in a moment, that's just it's one of the best stories that I know. So the Talmud says, Afilu poshe Yisrael, even the sinners, I use air quotes because I don't like that word, but even those that aren't yet tzaddikim, let's, let's put it that way, even the not yet righteous amongst the Jews are Malayan mitzvot karimon, are filled with mitzvot, filled with good deeds, like a pomegranate is filled with seeds. If you've ever heard of the analogy of pomegranate 
and mitzvot, that's where it comes from. The Talmud says, even, I'm going to use my terminology, even the not yet tzaddikim, even the not yet righteous, are filled with mitzvot, like a pomegranate is filled with seeds. In other words, somebody might say about themselves, I'm not affiliated, I'm not observant, I'm not religious, I'm not so Jewish, or even, God forbid, say about themselves, I'm a bad Jew, or I'm just a small Jew, whatever it is, doesn't make a difference. Everyone ends up with a ton of mitzvot under their belt because we're, human beings are, by and large, decent human beings doing good things. And so, you know, as it happens, there's a lot of mitzvot that are happening. I'll tell you a story. You know, the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe used to welcome, well, back in the day, people would come to his office and they would have private meetings. But the Rebbe got older and um, the lines got long and, and, and the number of people knocking on his door got, got that, that number of people and became larger. There were too many people and not enough time to meet with the Rebbe. In fact, just parenthetically, at a certain point, I think in the 70s or 80s, um, the Rebbe was getting more mail than the President of the United States of America. I mean, that's the level of, um, of, uh, of, of, of mail correspondence that the Rebbe would get. And unlike the President, the Rebbe would open every envelope, every piece of mail himself, read every piece of mail himself, and... Um, one time his, his, uh, his, his um, secretaries wanted to buy him a letter opener. I think even a machine. Not, not even a, like a knife thing, but like an electron, like an electric letter opener. And the Rebbe said the following. I've heard this from the secretaries. The Rebbe said that some letters are sealed with tears. And there's no way a machine can tell. That's, that's how the Rebbe said about, about the letters that he wanted to open with his hands to, to, to physically engage with the letter and the envelope. But back to our story. So there was a, so I, when, when there came a time where there were too many people to meet in person with the Rebbe, so the Rebbe instituted what's, what's been called um, Sunday dollars, where the Rebbe would stand in the synagogue by his office and... And, and lot, people would line up for hours, thousands of people, a line for men, a line for women, and they would go by the Rebbe one by one. The Rebbe would hand a, give the person a dollar and a blessing, and the person had maybe a quick chance to ask for a specific blessing. The Rebbe would, would give a blessing or some advice, and the line would keep on moving. So that was a quick way to have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the Rebbe um, in quick succession. So there's a story about a fellow who was, and I had the opportunity to, uh, to be in that line several times um, as, a, as a child and a bar mitzvah boy, I had that opportunity. So there, there's a story, here's, here's the story. That's kind of background, and he, now here's the story. There was a, a fellow Jewish guy who was a chassid, a Hasidic guy, from a different Hasidic um, style. Not a Chabad uh, guy, another guy. And he comes by and he says, greetings from my Rebbe, my, my spiritual leader. So the Rebbe said to him something, I'm paraphrasing the story, I'm not getting the exact dialogue correct, but he says to this fellow, so tell me what, 
What what have you learned recently from your Rebbe? From your, what what's, what what teaching have you have you gotten recently? So he said, you know, we were at a uh, at a gathering and, and 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 our Rebbe was talking about the Talmud that I just quoted to you before that says that even the sinners amongst Israel are filled with pomegranates are filled with uh, with mitzvah like a pomegranate is filled with seeds. And so he said, my 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 te- my, my Rebbe, my spiritual master, was wondering. How it's possible that a sinner could actually have so many mitzvot, right? How, if the person's really a sinner, then how could they have so many mitzvot? They, they, they probably don't have that many mitzvot. That was the question. The Rebbe smiled and said, I also have always, I've also never understood that Talmud, that piece of Talmud. But for a different reason. Because if a person has so many mitzvot, how can we call them a sinner? <laughs> that was the Rebbe's take on it, right? If a person has so many mitzvot, how do we actually call them a sinner? Anyway, I hope that story made sense, but it's just a different perspective. Some people say, based on that piece of Talmud, by the way, that pomegranates have 613 seeds, which I don't know if there's another source, but the Talmud never says that a pomegranate has 613 mitzvot. It just says that even one who's not a tzaddik yet is filled with mitzvot like a pomegranate. is full of seeds. Like, like a pomegranate has lots of seeds. Everywhere you look, there are seeds. So, too, everyone has lots of mitzvot everywhere, everywhere you look. But I digress. Back to Donna's question, which is about the, um, the, the state of the union, so to speak. Like, how's this working out? How, wh- how will this work? How could this work out? You know, given the percentages, and the answer is, everyone's, everyone's part of it, Jew and, not, and non-Jew, right? Everyone has the opportunity to bring light, and it's happening. It's happening more than, more than, more than what's out there. And the reason why it's happening more than what's out there is because... You know, the, the news is typically negative, and we hear about all the negative stuff, and there's a lot of negative stuff. The world is not where it needs to be. There's a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of um, tragedy in the world. I mean, we've just seen this horrific tragedy that is still unfolding before our eyes in, 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 in Miami, in Surfside. Um, and we pray for everyone. We pray for everyone's safety and, 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 and the families that need comfort. It, it's, it's crazy. I mean, there's just... A, the connections of people that I know that know people, or there's a Chabad couple that's missing, part of the uh, uh, residents of that, of, that, uh, of that side of the tower that fell. And we pray, and we continue to pray for their safety and well-being and the comfort of, 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 uh, and the healing for everybody involved. And the world is not where it needs to be. But, but, but a, lot of, a lot of work is happening. But back to our story, the, the big idea of today's session is that it's important to recognize the roles of the hero and the villain. It's when, we, it's when we confuse hero and villain, that might sell a lot of tickets for Hollywood, but in our own lives, when we confuse hero and villain, it could lead to disastrous results. It could lead, us, it could lead to us aligning with the dark side, aligning with Sitra Achra, the other side, aligning with Klippa, the shell. And although it might seem exciting at first, it might seem thrilling, like, ooh, look at this. I've broken from convention. Everyone can always find, you know, meaning in light and joy in light. But I'm taking a walk down the dark side. This is exciting. This is edgy. This is like, you know, noir. This is, this is super cool, what I'm doing. Ultimately, it's not sustainable, as we've discussed, on a spiritual level, it's not sustainable. Because, going back to what I said before about 
desire and will, there's what God wants, and then there's what God really wants. What God really wants is that we produce light. God said, let there be light. God says to you and I, let there be light. Make light. Make this world a brighter place. And so when we're aligned with that, we're aligned with the source of energy, the source of life, and the flow flows seamlessly. When we align ourselves, because of free choice, with the other side, the sitra akra, literally the other side, or the klipa, it's the same thing, or the shell, whatever you want to call it, with the dark side, with evil, with negativity, right? Then what happens is, Kabbalistically, Kabbalah explains, we are siphoning off the energy, the life force, into that dark place, taking a cut off the top, getting more energized because of that misappropriation of the light, but it's not a sustainable enterprise. At some point, the feds, whatever that is spiritually, it's going to get busted up. The scheme is going to get busted, right? Siphoning off the light from its intended destination and moving it to a dark space and then taking the first cut, taking 10% of that off the top because we're facilitating it is exciting, it's edgy, you know, may make a person feel alive spiritually even without realizing what's going on but it's not sustainable. Ultimately, it's not sustainable, which is exactly what we're going to get into today. Okay, so here's where we're up to. We are going to jump in We're going to jump into our text. Let me share my screen with you. And again, if you have any questions, jump in. Any questions or comments, feel free to jump in. Um, Okay. Okay, we're up to chapter... Oh, gosh, why can't I figure out where we're up to? Chapter 3. Okay, I think we're on page 120. Yeah. I think we're up to 120, where this section called the nape, externality of divine will. All right, it's page 120. Gonna get my book ready. By the way, these books, if anybody's interested, these books are now available on the website of the publisher, kahut.com. Last I checked, at least a few weeks ago, it was back in print. If anybody wants a copy for your own study, it is available. Okay, um, here we go. He's going to talk about levels of will. You see this externality of divine will? So that means that there is divine will, but then there's the externality of that divine will, which is the realm of evil. So here we go. Now, when the inwardness of the divine will is elicited to Israel through Torah and mitzvot, as we noted, I just want to explain this opening line. Inwardness of the divine will means what God really wants. That means the penimut haratzon, the core of what God wants. So that is elicited to Israel, the Jewish people, through Torah mitzvot, as we noted, as we've been discussing today and in previous sessions, um, when we are, again, this, this text is written for the Jewish community. So when a Jew, here called Israel, when a Jew is on, is on point with Torah and mitzvot, studying Torah, doing mitzvot, so that is achieving, bringing light into the world, and that's aligned perfectly with why God created the world. God created the world, let there be light. This brings the light, so it's perfectly aligned with God's inwardness. The, the core, maybe that's a better word, the core of God's desire and creation. So at that point, 
Ah, so when that happens, one second, when that happens, there is necessarily a leakage that happens as well. So I'm going to break this down in a moment. So at the same time that the inwardness is flowing where it's supposed to flow, in other words, at the same time that the light is flowing to its intended target, the externality, the hinder part of the will, again, the external will, which is God's desire for there to be a villain to provide the contrast, which is called nape and not face, it's the back of the neck, it's not the face, that is elicited to the idolaters, whose root is in the 70 supernal princes who receive their nurture from the state of hinder part and externality, which means simply like this. Every time light is flowing to the hero, there also has to be light flowing to the villain. It's like in a movie. When you're giving attention, screen time, to the hero, you can't forget about the villain or else the story becomes boring or else the plot ceases to exist. So as much dialogue and attention you give to the hero, you also have to give to the villain. Not because, in at least originally, right? Not because the villain is the hero, but because for the hero to be a hero, you need a villain. For the villain to be a villain, you have to have some attention thrown that way. Listen, the example that I'm using today about movies and heroes and villains is not a perfect example. I happen to like it. I came up with it. I happen to like it. I think it works and explains a few different features here. One of the features being this idea of where we focus attention on. If you're writing a book, right, so you need a hero, and you need the anti-hero, you need the antagonist, you need the villain. If you're writing chapter after chapter after chapter of the, of the hero and no tension, it's going to get boring. So you have to have the other, but the, uh, the attention is not for the sake of the villain, it's really to, to create more drama for our hero for that part of the story. Same thing is true with divine light and energy in this world. God created the world for the hero, for the light in the right places. But God also needs a villain. To make the hero a hero, you need a villain to be a villain. So every time there's energy in the right place, there's energy also going to, to, to a holy place. It's also going to an unholy place. Back inside. For this reason, they are called other gods. This is referring to the Sitra Akra, as we explained earlier. Why other gods? Other because, number one, they are foreign to God's will, but also because they're receiving from a state of hinder part and externality, which means it's almost begrudging. It's like, because I wanted to write a story or write a film or shoot a film about a hero, I must have a villain. I guess I'm forced to have a villain. So that's kind of like begrudging, it's a necessary evil, almost literally necessary evil. It's needed, but it's still evil. They receive, let's get, so, that, so other gods, Elohim Acherim, Acher means not only other, but it also means external. They receive their nurture incidentally, as it were. Incidentally. Like, oh, incidentally means like, not accidentally, but incidentally means secondarily. Rather like, very similar to the aforementioned analogy of the royal feast in chapter 1. We gave the example of the royal feast where you're, the king is, is creating a royal feast and necessarily there's going to be some of the food is going to go to those that were not intended for, to, to enjoy the feast. Why? Because it's part of the framework of how things work. 
same thing is true here. Since nurture, that means like spiritual energy, is provided for those fit, for those that are appropriate, those who embody the inner will, the light makers, then others too have the opportunity to receive their nurture, though they are unfit. So the ones that are appropriate get it, but when the ones that are appropriate get the energy and the light, the ones that are not appropriate also get it in order to create that balance. But they receive from the remains. Not literally in the case of spirituality, but, but they get from the leftovers. Although, it, incidentally, although it was not intended for them at all, in a similar vein, the externals, it's referring to the evil, the dark side, receive nurture and vitality from the divine light, from the remains and externality of the divine will. But first, there has already been radiance and inward flow from the inwardness of the divine will to the realm of holiness through bringing the light into vessels by performing the mitzvot. This is the meaning of, may his face shine upon you as discussed. So, just very, I, I hope this makes sense. I mean, I've been trying to, to use as much, you know, um, conversational and contemporary language and analogies as possible to make, you know, what otherwise would sound like, you know, maybe a bizarre Kabbalistic idea uh, more sensical. And I'm hoping, it, I'm hoping this makes sense. You have the intention. You have, in other words, what does God want? Light and Torah and mitzvot and goodness and the seven commandments, the six routine, whatever. God wants what's right. And then you have the opposite, evil, to the dark side, which God doesn't want but almost needs in order to have the opposition. So there also has to be energy going there, but that's a begrudging energy over the shoulder, behind the back. The nape, not the face. It's incidentally, not intentionally. It's external, not internal. It's the remains, not the main, not the main feast. All of those are uh, points of uh, usage of language that indicate that they are secondary, not the primary focal point of existence. It follows then, back inside, that the nurture provided the external beings, right, that which exists on the dark side, is from the hinder part. Precisely like hurling over the shoulder, without intention. Now, you throw something over your shoulder, without intention. In other words, it's not what you really want. It's, all right, take it. Incidental to a true purpose when he grants nurture in an inward manner to an inward being. In other words, the true purpose, it's, this, is, this behind the back over the shoulder is incidental to the true purpose which is when God grants nurture in an inward manner to an inward being. So that which is bringing the light, doing what it's supposed to be doing, in the way that God wants, gets the light directly, face to face, with love and, and appreciation. It's like, oh, you're doing what I want. Here's the light. Here's the energy. Here's what you need. Here are the resources. When it's the opposite situation, when it's the opposite scenario, it's kind of like, take it, fine. I need you in my script. Otherwise, the hero's not going to be a hero. Otherwise, light's not going to be light. Fine. Here's some dialogue. Here's some scenes. Here's some pages in the, in the, in, in the novel. All right. Take it. But it's not... Now, of course, as I mentioned before, it's possible to flip the script. And for a person to say, Ah, no. The villain is the hero. But that's not God's plot. That's the plots that we create, where we um, romanticize the villain, which is possible. That's what sin is. Let's continue. The nurture for the externals has no vestige of an inward radiance of the inner will at all. It's not at all what God wants. right? It has no vestige, no trace 
of an inward radiance. Inward radiance. Inward radiance means what God really wants, of the inner will of what God. Therefore, they, the dark side, receive only the trifles and the drags that have fallen. And only after the flow issues from the inwardness to the realm of holiness can they receive the trifles that they do get. In other words, back to our movie. You have a hero. Because there's a hero, you have to have some plots, some scenes with the villain. But that's only in response to the heroes. Right? The whole movie is about the hero. But in order for the hero to be a hero and to get to destination, you also have to have these, these other tensions and the drama. But that's only secondary to the primary. But when nothing flows manifestly from the inwardness to the realm of holiness, he says, imagine for a moment, if it's possible, and he gives an example in the parentheses, and I'm going to explain that in a moment when it's possible. But imagine if the hero was not getting any dialogue either. Imagine if the hero would not have any screen time. So you wouldn't need to give screen time to the villain because the only reason why you have a villain is because you have a hero. But if you have no hero, you also have no villain. So he says, imagine, theoretically, if nothing would flow from the inwardness of God's will to the realm of holiness, if, if you wouldn't have the positive flow, let's skip the parentheses for a second, then they receive no nurture at all. Then you wouldn't have the flow to the negative side. If you don't have a flow to the positive side, you also wouldn't have a flow to the negative side. If you wouldn't have... The hero, you wouldn't need to have a villain. The villain doesn't exist as a world unto itself. In the spiritual dynamic, the realm of darkness, of klipa, of sitra akra, doesn't need its own energy unto itself, if not for the fact that there's energy flowing to the, the side of light, to the side of goodness and godliness and positivity. It's only for the balance that you need it to go to that dark side. But if there's no energy on the, on the good side, there need not be any energy on the negative side. The question, though, is wh when would there not be any manifest flow to the good side? Like, wh wh How is that even possible? Why would you not have a hero in God's world? So he gives the example here when the worlds ascend. There's something called Aliyat HaOlamot, um, which is, or Aliyot HaOlamot, the elevation of the worlds, which happens every Shabbat, as well as on Rosh Hashanah. And this is too big of a topic to really like just, you know, get into and, and kind of, you know, wrap up you know, on one foot. But just know this, there is certain, there are certain times when the worlds are considered to be in a bit of a more transcendent state and the flow of energy is not flowing from above to below, but the energy is flowing from below to above. Um, I'll say that again. Typically, God creates a world and I don't mean physically, like higher and lower, but above means spiritually, below is physically. So the flow of energy is from above, from God to below to us, and it's kind of like one direction, right? It's kind of flowing downward, not physically, but conceptually downward into our realm of existence. On Shabbat, for example, Friday night and other times, there is an aliyot ha'olamot, where the worlds ascend. And the modality of the energy is not top down, but it's bottom up. And so you don't really have a flow from God to hero. You have an ascension of hero to source. So if there's no flow, then there's no flow either to the dark side because there's no flow down. There's no flow coming down to holiness. There need not be a flow, uh, a mirror flow to the opposite side. Anyway, that's a, it's a technical distinction, but it brings out, it highlights the core idea here. And that is that the only reason why any energy flows to the dark side is because it flows to the light side. And 
there needs to be a contrast. Why does there need to be a contrast? That's how God set it up. That there should be a contrast for free choice. Right? That's why we have the, the tree of knowledge and the serpent in the Garden of Eden and not just, you know, goodness and, 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 and godliness. There, ha- there, there needs to be a villain to make everything meaningful. Okay, back inside. Um, so if there's no flow to the side of holiness, there would also be no flow to the side opposing it. Here we go. Let's do the final sentence here and for this chapter before we move on. Only when the realm of holiness receives from the inward state can the citra receive the bears of the dregs and the by- and byproducts. So it's only when the flow is going to the good side that the dark side also gets. You want to use the other example that I've been using, you know, like the 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 stealing of some something, you know, a shipment comes in and whatever. So when it's going to the warehouse, it can be siphoned off. But if nothing is coming in, then nothing's, go- then nothing's being siphoned off. Whatever. Just imp- all, all these different analogies are imperfect, but all trying to bring out the same idea that there's contrast, which means that there's energy flow to the dark side. It's intentional, but not really what God wants. Secondary, not primary, incidental, not intentional. But that's where it goes. All right, questions or comments on what we just read before we move on? Jump in. Rabbi? Yes. Yaakov. Um, the, the example that you just gave that you said was so imperfect was really perfect. So I don't know why you said that. But it was um, a, uh, a friend of mine whose employee has been siphoning off uh, the profits wow. from a warehouse. And this was the warehouse manager. And... Um, my friend is very trusting, but, you know, uh, uh, it, 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 he literally stayed open during COVID and went almost $300,000 into his savings to pay for his employees so he would have a business after COVID. And then in my own life, um, I, uh, you know, it, 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 it's hard when people betray trust, betray your trust, and uh, kind of uh, try to destroy your your dreams or your life or your livelihood. Um, so I know it goes deeper and I know we have to look for reasons for that, but you know, this is just a different way, a dimension of um, people siphoning off your own energy. Right. And, 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 and it's, it makes it, uh, you know, look, it's a good lesson. I mean, everything in life that, um, that happened to this point is a blessing and a lesson and a package ready to be opened and um, we don't have to have any regrets about anything because, you know, my friend has his lesson to learn, I have my lessons to learn. Right. Um, but I guess the hard part is uh, if you're controlled by your subconscious, how the heck do you, you know, stop attracting those types of things in your life because uh, it's uh, detrimental. So yeah. Yep. Thank you for sharing that. That's, that seems like a very, very horrible um, uh, situation. And I hope it's able to be recovered, what was, what was siphoned off and stolen, essentially. Um, but yeah, it kind of speaks to what we're talking about, which is, you know, if we want to use a different word, we could use, instead of theft or, you know, siphoning off, we could use the word misapp- misappropriation, right? It's, it's a misappropriation. It's like there's energy that's that's flowing, that's intended to flow to a certain direction, and before it gets there, it's being redirected. Now, in our text, we're saying that it's intention, from God's perspective, it's intentional to give at least the bare minimum of energy to redirect 
to the unwanted place because you need to have that foil. But as really what you're speaking to is really what we're about to jump into, the next, the next paragraph, which is, well, what happens when we, instead of God, you know, keeping the villain afloat, what happens when we start redirecting energy there because we like the villain or because part of us, you know, connects with the villain or acts villainous, which is possible. You know, human beings can do that. So then what happens on a spiritual dynamic then? Um, one, one thing that I wanted to mention, a quick shout out. Ekaterina, you are in Russia right now? St. Petersburg? Yes, ma'am. Nice. The power of Zoom. Love it. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. All right. Yes, Toba, go. Yeah. Regarding evil. God yes. causes evil so that we could choose good from that. <coughs> but often the evil is directed from a person through a person that does evil. So does that mean that God and God creates evil? Does that mean God has made this person do evil? No, everyone well, explain it. in which case where's free will? Right. If God causes evil. Right. No, so God God doesn't, you know, I, I think I understand your question. God doesn't make the choice for the person. It's no different than God putting Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Honestly, we don't have to go dramatic examples. All of us have, have done things that are wrong. I mean, I, King Solomon said, There's no righteous person on earth who's only done good and never made a mistake. We've all made mistakes, right? We're all, we're, this conversation is not about anyone else. It's literally about you and I. Or if I was at a Fabrengan, I would say, I'm speaking to myself, right? This is about me, right? So the question is, in those moments, what happened? Did God make me do it? I know better. I know not to blame God. God allowed free choice. God allowed for there to be a negative choice in the world. So, and I chose the evil. Did God, can I blame God? No. I have to, I have to look inside and take responsibility. I made, a ba- I made an evil choice. So what's your question? What's the, what's the fault? Then why is it, why do we say that God creates the evil? God creates the possibility. Like no, I'm with you. God creates the possibility for the evil choice. In other words, God creates the forbidden fruit. God creates the serpent that says, that bugs you and says, hey, this looks really good. Why don't you try it? So yeah, God's, if God didn't create the forbidden fruit, there wouldn't be any, there wouldn't be any evil, there wouldn't be anything forbidden. Right? There would be, everything that we would do would be good because there wasn't an opposite choice. Likewise, if God didn't create, if God did create evil, but didn't create an evil urge, then we again wouldn't have, we, we wouldn't be doing anything wrong because we would say, oh, that's evil. Oh, that's the villain. That's ridiculous. I'm out of here. Right, then there wouldn't be a temptation, so there wouldn't be free choice. So when we say that God creates evil, what that means is not that God does the evil for us, but that God creates the forbidden fruit, using that example. God creates the serpent. God sets it up so that a person is really tested. And now the question is, so what are we going to do? Now you might ask another question, right? Who brings about natural disasters? Is that God? Is that not God taking lives? Right? Is that not God? To that, I don't have an answer. Because, so, yeah, so, right, so in terms of humans, right, so if we were to divide the questions, right, so there's acts of God, I can't explain that, I don't think anyone can explain that, if anyone tries to explain that, 
I would be very suspicious, or as the kids say today, sus, I'd be very suspicious about that. Um, anyone who claims to know why God does anything, show me your, show me your uh, credentials for that, and then we can have a conversation. But regarding your question, your question is, I think, a little bit easier to understand. And that is that, yes, God creates evil, but he doesn't choose the evil. He sets, he creates the possibility and the temptation, and then says, now choose. So if somebody chooses, it's on them. But I, I think it's like a distraction to talk about someone else. If I choose, let's speak about ourselves. If I choose, right, to get angry, right, so there's a good reason to get angry. And there's a desire to get angry. But if I choose to get angry, that's not God. That's me choosing to get angry. Because I could also choose to take a deep breath and to meditate, to walk away from the situation, right? To, I could do any number of things to not express anger, even if I feel it rising inside, right? I'm just using anger as an example. It could be anything. Jealousy. It could be a negative choice, a negative behavior, whatever. Any, any negativity, we have the power to override. Um, okay, now, so that's, so that's still on us. Back inside to our text, because I really wanted to jump into chapter 4. Okay, and this, is, this will tell you where we're going with this, along the lines of what Yaakov mentioned before about that very, very um, unfortunate story, that very just horrible story. Um, this is called the sinning Jew, which we're going to be talking about someone who intentionally chooses to misdirect the energy into the dark side. So there's, again, to be very clear, God creates both light and darkness. But the intention is the light. The darkness is only the contrast. It's only the villain. It's only to make it exciting or whatever. So there's only the bare minimum of energy that flows there just to keep that around. But when a person chooses to glorify, to worship, to whatever, to you know, pay allegiance to the dark side, that's now directing intentional energy from oneself to the dark side over and above the basic dregs or whatever we call it that, that flow there automatically. And that's a problem. Here we go. The core of what we discussed until what we have discussed until now is that the inwardness of the divine will is elicited through Torah and Mitzvot only to Israel. The Sitra Achor receives the other side, the dark side, receives the barest dregs and byproducts of the externality of the divine will. So that's what we've set up until now, right? That the light goes, again, he's speaking to the Jewish community, so he says, where does it go? It goes to the Jew doing Torah mitzvot. So the Jew doing Torah mitzvot, that's where the core light, the core energy flows, because that's what God really wants. And it's the, in the Sitra Akra, the other side only gets the barest drags and byproducts. It's, it's, it's just kept afloat to have a villain in the story to make it exciting. This explains why a sinful person brings increased vitality and nurture to the Sitra Akra. You see what he says here? This, it's like separated by a Hebrew page, so it's a little bit difficult to see the flow. This explains, we're going to go slowly, why a sinful person brings increased vitality and nurture to the Sitra Akra. 
Someone who sins is now taking the energy from where it was supposed to go, the core energy, and throwing it at the Sitra Akra when it was never supposed to be glorified like that. It was literally the villain that was supposed to be looked at with a side eye. Like, bro, you're the villain. No way. Like, you're the bad guy. It was supposed to be identified clearly as the bad guy. What happens when a person looks at the villain and says, hey, villain, you look good. I want to hang out together. So now what's happening is that a person who was supposed to be getting the energy, the core flow from God, the core divine energy for the, for the light, for the side of light, is now taking that flow that they're getting and throwing it at the villain. Why? Why does he have the ability, he or she, why does a person have the ability to do that? For in essence, he belongs with the inward aspect because the person has access to the core light because that's what they're supposed to be doing. And now they're throwing it at the, at the, at the dark side. That's how they have that ability to do so. Though he receives first, he gets a cut, right? The, the guy who's siphoning the light gets, a, gets the first cut. Though he receives first, his portion... Uh, it's written a little bit of an awkward way. Though he receives... Uh, first, his portion, his portion, his portion first. He gets the first cut. He gets the first percentage of the light. Though he receives first his portion of the vitality that he brought to the Sitra Akhra. I don't think that that's written in correct grammar. Still, it must inevitably be terminated. And that's the point. The gig will not last forever. The misappropriation cannot last forever. So in, in Yaakov's example, again, that horrible story with his friend in the warehouse, or I, th I think he said warehouse, right? So, so and, and, and the stuff that's being, at some point, the, the crime is discovered, right? At some point, the flow ends. So it must inevitably be terminated. And indeed, the Sitra Akra will avenge itself of him. So here we have something even more. And this is what I wrote in the subject of the email, the revenge of the dark side. This is where not, so it's like, the, instead of aligning with the light, you're aligning, not you, but one is aligning with the darkness, and then one is siphoning off the light and takes the first cut because they're the one facilitating. It's not, number one, it won't last forever. It's going to end. And number two, who will end it? The Sitra Akra itself is, go, the evil itself is evil for a reason, and part of that is that it's destructive, and it's going to destroy even the hand that feeds it, i.e. the person who's misappropriating the energy. And so what that means is that the house of cards will come crashing down, and who is the one that's going to be the first one to jump at the one who was helping? It's going to be the Sitra Akra going after the one who was feeding it. It's the dog, it's the proverbial dog biting the hand of the one who is feeding it. Why? Because well, it's called the dark side. What did you expect? Right? You're, you're hanging out with the devil. What do you expect? I'm using devil in a loose term, right? Not, I don't mean in the uh, religious sense. You're hanging out with, uh, with, 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 with the criminal. What do you expect? Right? An honest criminal now. Yeah, you expect on. It's like I had no idea, right? I I was I was stealing this whole time for the criminal, and then they turned against me. Is there no honesty left? It's like, bro. It's like seriously, where are you hanging out? It's like the guy who bribes the judge. It's like the right the lawyer who bribes the judge, and the judge rules against him ultimately. 
and he's complaining with his friends. He's like, you can't trust anyone anymore. It's like, bro, you were... You're with me on this. Okay, let's continue back inside. Um, Though he sinned, so now he gets into, 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 into the nitty-gritty here. Though he sinned, he's a Jew nonetheless. By virtue of his soul, he is of the inner aspect of holiness. In other words, the mission and the responsibility of the Jew is to bring the light into the world through Torah and mitzvot. So that's the DNA. And through the mitzvot he performed before sinning, he has elicited the inwardness of the divine will into the realm of holiness. So, this is the person's job, it's their role, it's their purpose of being, and they've done it before. But when he sins, he brings an increase of radiance from the inner realm to the klipot and sitra achra. So, yeah, so that person had been before, you know, bringing the light from the core to the, to the, to the holy spaces. They've been doing that. But sin means that you're now aligning with the klipot. The klipot is plural of klipa, singular. Klipot, the shells, and the sitrach on the other side. And that means that you're redirecting. It's kind of like the, the train tracks. It's like with the switch, or a flow of water, di- directing the water instead of here. Now it's going somewhere else. It's that flow that's being redirected through the sin. And we find this terminology of waters redirecting in the order of rejection, it's a, a prayer that some people recite, that, quote, that he, quote, rejected the waters flowing from the house of God to a filthy place. Rejected may be redirected. Now, redirection means rejection because it should have been flowing there. So the fact that it's not means rejection, but it's not just sent back to owner, but it's, um, re, or sorry, return to sender. It's re- redirecting it to a filthy place, to the place of, darkness, the place of evil. He takes and he gets the first cut. He takes his portion for he, well, he takes his portion first of the physical beneficences for he is the one who brought the increase to them. So again, it's the, it's the one who's redirecting who gets the first cut, but as we said before, it's not sustainable. It will inevitably be terminated and the Sitrach will avenge itself of him. We'll get back to this point. But he's kind of, he's just cycling through it a few times so that we get, we get this idea. And here's where it comes to an end. Let's continue inside. But everything has a time and season. This is evocative of what King Solomon says. That everything has a time and everything is a season. There's a time to live, a time to die, a time to be born, right? That whole thing. A time to do this, a time for that, right? I'm just paraphrasing. But everything has its time and season. When he has destroyed, God forbid. In other words, this too will come to an end. When he has destroyed, God forbid, the portion of his soul, the portion of good within himself, God save us, is it it really destroyed or is it neglected? Whatever, we can can get into the nitty-gritty of the language here. But when a person has gone to the dark side consistently, Right and, and neglected what they need, what they should have been nurturing, may God save us. In other words, it should never happen. Then he can no longer receive his nurture from them. Remember, when the person is no longer a conduit of the good energy, they can no longer be a conduit toward the negativity. Using the example of the warehouse, 
and the, the, the theft. If the theft can only happen as long as one is employed. The moment they're fired, they can no longer steal. I mean, you could steal by breaking in, but you can't steal by redirecting because you're not on the inside. The only way you can redirect, you know, um, from the inside is when you're on the inside. But at a certain point, spiritually, you're no longer on the inside. And when you're no longer on the inside, then you can no longer redirect. And then the Sitra Akra turns on the person. That's what he's saying here. I hope that makes sense. Everything is going to go back. Everything has a time and season. When he has destroyed, God forbid, the portion of his soul, the portion of good within himself, God save us. Right? So when you lose that position in the company, you're no longer the insider, then he can no longer receive his nurture from them. For essentially, because he is a Jew, he must receive his own nurture only from the inner will. Right? At the core, he needs to get his light from his vitality, the spiritual energy, from the inner will, from what God really wants, i.e. from the state of inwardness of the divine will that is elicited into the world through Torah and Mitzvot, as we said before, as we have noted and shall elaborate upon later. So in other words, there is a way in which it's supposed to work. It's supposed to work that we study Torah, we do good deeds, and the light flows because God wants goodness on this world and we're doing good things, right? The Jew in their own way through 613 Mitzvot. So God wants and loves giving us the energy and vitality, giving us life every morning we wake up and our consciousness returns to us. God loves doing that because we are facilitating what He wants on earth. But at a certain point in time, if that's not happening, and the only thing that's happening is that we're taking our consciousness, our energy, and feeding the dark side, at a certain point, that's going to end. So it's only because he has fallen into the klipot. Let's continue. It is only because he has fallen to the klipot, the, the shell, through sin, that he receives by their hands of the increased vitality that he himself has caused them to receive. Right? So a person could also get energy from the thrill and the misdirection. But this is only temporary. Again, we're just cycling back to the temporary nature of this. But later, he receives no more through them, for it is inappropriate for him to receive from the hinder part. In other words, you and I are not supposed to be part of the criminal enterprise, the villainous enterprise of existence. You and I are not supposed to be meandering on the dark side of existence, of reality. We're meant to be bringing light into this world. So how long, it's not, how long is it sustainable to get energy from the dark side's energy. The dark side is only getting the bare minimum energy. Oh, but because you're aligned with the good sides, and you, now you're aligned with the dark side, so you're siphoning off some of that energy. That is going to run out, it's going to dry up at a certain point, it's going to end. The hinder part is for the idolaters who always receive their vitality from there. But the sinning Jew only momentarily takes from them what he has brought to them. May God protect us from this. But later he does not receive his vitality from them, and the flow must cease. And now, it's, again, ever, it's, it's, he's cycling through this to really drill it into our heads to understand the dangers of aligning with the dark side. Let's continue. Even if he studies Torah and performs mitzvot during the interim, justifying the Talmudic declaration that I said before, even if the emptiest among you is as full of mitzvot as a pomegranate is full of seeds, still, he is, still until he repents, his Torah and mitzvot are not desired or acceptable on high. In other words, if a person is working for the mob, I don't mean that literally, if a person is working for the criminal enterprise, then doing 
uh, a mitzvah, studying Torah, it's a mixed message. It's a mixed message, and it's not gonna it's not gonna be accepted the way it needs to be accepted. This is as the verse states, but to the wicked, God said, what does it help you to discuss my laws and bear my covenant? Right? To the wicked, God says, why are you studying Torah upon your lips? Um, for you hate discipline and throw my words behind you. In your heart, you hate discipline and you have thrown my words behind your back like a person who throws away something he cannot bear to look at. For this reason, he cannot elicit a flow of godliness through studying Torah and performing mitzvot. In other words, the flow, it can't, can't really dance at both weddings. If you're if you're misappropriating the energy to the dark side, then you're not bringing light into the good side. You can't dance at both sides, both weddings. Reisha Chachma states, whoever is full of the filth of his sin, his Torah has no satisfaction to his creator. The reason is that through Torah study, man elicits the Shekhinah upon himself, and when he is clean of sin, the Shekhinah has found the throne and a seat to sit and rest. So when a person is clean, right, again, who is perfectly clean of sin? The answer is no one. But relatively speaking, right, when we're more or less, you know, okay, when our vessel is, is more or less empty and open, then God's presence can rest. But when man is soiled with the stains of his sins, the Torah cannot reside in him, for he has no throne to accommodate Torah or the Shekhinah. Shekhinah is the divine presence. Since he is no vessel, that's a quote from Mishra's Chachma, and now back inside, since he is no vessel for the divine light, it is understood that without first doing tshuva, without first pivoting back to the good side, his Torah study and mitzvah observance cannot elicit the revelation of light from on high. You might be asking, well, isn't tshuva doing Torah mitzvot? The answer is yes, it is. But the point of this is saying that if a person is still actively involved in the crime of siphoning off the energy to the dark side, then studying Torah in the interim or while committing that crime is not going to help flip it. What, what's required is to cut ties with the dark side. And then that's what Shuvah is when you cut ties with the negativity and then you jump back in to the positive. Whoever surrenders himself to the klipot, God forbid, they will avenge themselves of him, as Zohar explains at length. Um, okay, may God keep us from them and inspire us to serve him in truth and sincerity always, all our days. And so what we have here is, one could read this and say, wow, I mean, this is harsh, or wow, this is scary. I don't think it's meant to be harsh, and I don't think it's meant to be scary. I think it's meant to paint a picture of the mechanics of the universe. And the mechanics of the universe are very, are, are straightforward. I'm not going to say simple, but straightforward. And that is, that there's, there's a reason why God created this world. And the reason is for goodness. God wants us to be good to each other, to be a mensch, to study Torah, to do mitzvot. It's, it's kind of simple. To be honest, I'm not saying it's easy. It's kind of simple. Straightforward. Do the right thing. It's simple. Not easy. It's simple. Straightforward. What happens? What happens is, oftentimes... We're not doing that. And when we're not doing that, because there are other choices that God created, what happens is we're now giving energy, giving credence to the, to the dark side. God created the villain, but we should at least say, well, that's the villain. Who wants the villain? That's the bad guy. Call out the bad guy as a bad guy. The moment you and I say, oh, the bad guy, maybe not so bad. Let me hang out over there is the moment that we're disrupting the flow of energy and light into this world. And at that moment, yes, maybe we'll take the first cut, but it's going to end. It's not a sustainable, it's not a sustainable framework. And so what's the point? Number one, he's telling us the mechanics of the universe, mechanics of energy flow. Straight, straight up. 
It's like somebody saying, if you're not paying for electricity, but you're like stealing it from your neighbor, at some point that's going to end or it's going to be da da dangerous or wh whatever the right terminology with electricity is. But, but in the mechanics of the universe, it's just not a sustainable plan. So that's the facts. Well, what's the point? It's good to know the facts also, but what's the point? Going back to our book. The book is called Overcoming Folly, and it has a very clear objective. This is the book, Overcoming Folly. The premise of the book is that a human, you and I, human beings, we make negative choices all the time that we look back on and say, what was I thinking? How was I so silly to make that choice? How was I so foolish to do that? It's self-destructive. It was harmful to others. It harmed me physically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. It harmed others physically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. What was I thinking? What was I doing? I can't believe I did that. Or we might say to somebody else, I'm so sorry it wasn't me. It wasn't me. I don't know what came over me. It wasn't me. Of course it was me. I didn't have an out-of-body experience. It was absolutely me. So what was going on? At the moment that I did it, I justified it. I told myself, it's not so bad for any number of reasons. It's not so bad. I deserve it. They deserve it. It's only one time. No one's going to know about it. Blah, blah, blah. We have all these excuses, running excuses in our head to minimize the negativity, to allow ourselves over that hump to make that negative choice. This book and what we learned today is very, very simple in its objective. The objective is here are some meditations that we can have in our head, narratives in our head. So when that other narrative comes along and says, hey, why don't you do this? It's not so bad, right? No one's going to know about it. It's only one time. You'll get over it. No big deal. When that narrative creeps in, and we do know better, but when that narrative creeps in, there should be another narrative that bops it on its head and says, nope, we need another narrative to nope the negative narrative. And what is that other narrative? We have a bunch of them so far, but the one that we developed today is, I'm not going to align myself with the villain. I'm not going to misdirect energy to the dark side just because it looks good, just because it seems like it would be fun. That seems like a very silly thing. That's not a sustainable thing. That's not what God wants. That's not why I'm here. Right? That's just misappropriating the energy. That's going to harm the universe. It's going to harm myself. That's not what I want. I want what's good for me, what's good for the universe, and that's not this. This could be a meditation or a thought process. You want to call it meditation? A thought process that we can have in our back pocket, the back pocket of our minds, to pull out when that negative temptation, urge, desire comes up. So, in short, when we find ourselves conflicted, when we find ourselves First of all, awareness is the key. When we become aware, when we notice ourselves, it's important to be, to be aware of what's going on. When we become aware of ourselves justifying negative behavior, it's important to have a narrative that shuts that down. Here's one narrative. It's not healthy for me. It's not healthy for the universe. It's making the villain into a hero. And while that's, that may sell tickets in AMC, Right? Well, although that may sell tickets in the movie theaters, that's simply not good business for my spiritual integrity and for my purpose. I choose to engage in what is my purpose and not to be distracted by 
external things. This is a, so it's, uh, just, just to be clear here, everything that we've been learning, it's not about judging others or saying, oh, this, that, or the other. It's not about calling anyone else out. It's really not even about calling ourselves out and being down on ourselves. It's simply a narrative to be used when we're about to do something that we're going to regret later. Instead of doing it and regretting it later, before we do it, let's tell ourselves, it's not healthy for me. This is not in my self-interest. And I know it's not so easy. And I know it's not so simple. But the more we're conscious, the more we're aware, the more we're thinking, the less we're just acting. The key to changing behavior is slowing down the process. It's breaking it down. The greatest hitters in baseball are the ones that have the greatest eyes, that can see it and they slow it down. They see the pitch as it leaves the hands of the pitcher. They notice the grip of the pitcher's fingers on the baseball. They notice the rotation of the baseball. They know how the pitch is going to move. They know where to swing, when to swing, when not to swing. The greatest hitters have the greatest eyes that can slow down the pitch. And the same thing is true in our lives. When we slow it down, we're more primed, we're more apt, we're more capable of making a better decision. It's when everything happens so fast, I wasn't even thinking that we end up making mistakes. If we're able to be aware of our awareness and then be a little bit mindful and say, wait a second, what are we doing here? Like, what's, what do I want to do? Is this good? Is it good for me? Is it what I'm supposed to be doing? The more mindful we are, the better. This is why studying Kabbalah really every morning is so critical. Um, and it's, it's a Hasidic practice, practice to study, every, study and pray, study and prayer every single morning before we begin the day. Because once we're in the day, we're not thinking, right? Once we're in it, it's too late. The idea is to slow things down before we start so that this will be, we set the day off on the right foot so that this will be a day in which I'm going to be more mindful about my decisions, right? The big word today is mindfulness. That's exactly what we're talking about. Be mindful of what I'm feeling, of what is tempting me, what my purpose is, where my energies should be directed and should not be directed. The more mindful, the more present, the more aware that we are, the more likely we are to make a better decision and overcome folly. Thank you for joining me today. Let me see. Uh, there's a message here. Is there a special psalm that would have this positive narrative or prayers to give us inner strength? I don't think there's any special particular psalm. It is more of saying psalms or prayer or studying. It's about being, it's about slowing things down. It's about being a little bit more mindful, being a little bit more present in our lives. I mean, you and I know how many times we say things and we do things on impulse or whatever we weren't thinking or we, we just let it go, our minds just let it go because we just didn't take the time. We take the time to think and be mindful, we'll make better decisions. So, this week should be a good week, a positive week. Although today is the 17th of Tammuz, which is a fast day and it's a sad day in the Jewish calendar and it's leading into the three weeks, um, perhaps the positive is that it's a day of reflection and it's a day that we can think about, well, how do we end up here? How do we end up without a temple? How do we end up exiled from our land? How do we end up with such a 
difficult Jewish experience over the last 2,000 years. Think about what we need to correct within ourselves. The Rebbe once said, based on the Talmud, every generation that does not rebuild the temple, it's like it was destroyed. Wow, I mean, this is like, there's like audio, I think a video even, of the Rebbe saying these words. It's like, it's like, wow, it's like so powerful. The Rebbe's crying. And quoting the Talmud, the Talmud says, whoever did not merit to rebuild the temple in their lifetime, it's like it was, it's like it was destroyed again in their lifetime. So he says, imagine, imagine if the temple was being destroyed in front of your eyes. Wouldn't you move heaven and earth to stop it from being destroyed? You would care about in Yiddish. Care about means you would turn over the world to make it stop. So the Rebbe said, today the temple is being destroyed. Karavelt Haint, turn over the world today. Today, transform the world, the inner world, the outer world. Make a difference today. Make this world a better place. So let's all commit to positivity and to light and to mindfulness, to study, mitzvot, Torah, mitzvot, prayer. The three pillars of the world. In a world in which foundations are crumbling, we have to build up our inner foundations. Each one of us are inner foundations. Pirkei Avot says the world is built on three pillars. Torah, Avoda, and Gemilot Chasadim. Torah study, prayer, and acts of goodness and kindness, good deeds. So let's increase in all three areas, especially today, especially during the three weeks. And uh, please, God, we will bring light into the world as it was intended. As God said in the beginning, let there be light. May it be so, and let us say, Amen. Thank you for joining, and uh, it's great to see everybody. Have a wonderful day. Enjoy. Enjoy the fast day, whatever. Enjoy the day. Have an easy fast, and we'll see you guys soon. Oh, don't forget, a quick announcement. I'm sorry, quick announcement. We're starting a new course this week. We have our existing course, Curious Tales of the Talmud, on Tuesdays. We're starting a three-week Thursday night series all about the resurrection of the dead. Never taught this. We've talked about the resurrection of the dead in bits and pieces in various courses. This is a three-week course dedicated to this topic about the bodies, bodies coming back to life again. One of the most daring and out there beliefs in Judaism. We're going to discuss it and explore it. It's going to be fantastic. This Thursday night, the course is called Resurrection of the Dead in town, jewishacademy.org slash resurrection. All right. We'll see you guys soon. Take care, everybody. Have a wonderful day. It's great to see you all. Bye. Thank you very much. Pleasure, pleasure. We'll see you guys. Shavu Tov.